0: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And today, I am feeling quite tired. I'll let you guys know that right up front, so we might have a little bit of a loopy episode. One thing I do want to tell you guys, just, I don't want to go into too many of the details because some of the details are quite personal, but I have requested a move in my life to go over to Night Shift at my job, basically. And again, don't want to go into a whole ton of the reasons why a lot of them are pretty personal. But one reason I chose to do this was to get a little bit more time to work on uh, more extracurricular projects, such as the show. So this isn't really going to change anything in terms of the production or anything like that. It will take a little bit of adjustment just to adjust to this new schedule. I'm talking about my body basically is going to take some time to adjust to this new schedule. So in reference to that, another thing you guys are going to start to see very shortly is I am, unfortunately, if you can't beat them, join them, starting to join the Shorts game. It's going to be basically just clips from this podcast that are edited into one minute chunks and they have like a caption overlay type of thing. That's pretty low effort from my own perspective. It's not a lot of investment in time or energy to do stuff like this. And this hopefully will just allow the Comrade cast to get out to a few more people. I get it. Not everybody has the time to sit down and listen to a half an hour to an hour podcast. I barely have that amount of time to listen to other content. A lot of people these days are reaching for the more short form content. And while that isn't my cup of tea, I understand that not everybody is me. So within the next couple of days, you will start to see those appear. So right now, I've been building up a little bit of a war chest of the various clips that I think are the best from the show, and they come from all the various episodes of the show, from the very beginning to the most recent. And initially, I think I'm probably going to be pretty aggressive with this, maybe one a day, and then I'll taper off from there. Once I've burned through a lot of the older episodes, then it'll probably just be the highlights from whatever Comrade cast comes out that week. All right. So with that, let's start moving into the show itself and going to have a little bit of a shorter show today because, like I said, I am quite tired and I do have a couple of other things I'd like to take care of. Without further ado, it's Comrade Storytime. This is, of course, another AI prompt. The AI prompt here is just Comrade Storytime. I love how, like, all these guys, they all have beards, sorry, and they're all listening to him intently and it looks like I don't know what AI has given the guy reading. It looks like a fusion of a newspaper and a novel. He's eyeing everybody warily before he starts reading. But the great thing about this story is that it intersects not just personal history, but of course, actual real life history. Our story starts with, as I mentioned uh, a couple episodes ago, I was on vacation in Eastern British Columbia, specifically the Kootenai region, which is what we are viewing right here. So as I mentioned, usually about once a year I vacation in this area because, again, my father has deep ties to this area. He grew up in this area. So I'm quite familiar with it. And one of the things it definitely gives off is an area that is past its economic prime. It's not like a bad area or anything like that. In fact, it's quite beautiful, and it's a wonderful, wonderful place. That anyone could ever spend their summer vacation the issue is that it's very remote there aren't any large towns in this region unless you actually live nearby chances are you're probably never going to go here because you can't just get on a plane and fly in and visit the cutenies you'd have to rent a car and drive there effectively anyway back in the day though this region was a economic hotbed and when I'm back in the day i'm talking right 1900 to maybe 1970s 1980s right i have a very long window of quite vigorous economic activity let's zoom in here just a touch to, you know, to the lake itself kootenai lake is very long and very deep and very narrow and this shares a common feature with a lot of lakes in british columbia they are basically leftovers from. Glaciers, which melted in the previous ice age. And due to its very hilly geography, a lot of these glaciers, when they melted, the ice just melted into the canyons in between these mountains and became these very gorgeous lakes. And during that early 20th century period, this region was seeing its heyday. There was mining, there was timber, there was also agricultural products grown in the region. And all of this stuff needs to get moved around somehow. One of the things they did is, as we can see here at the southern edge of Kootenay, we have this town right here. It's a very small town called Krestin. About, I think about 15,000 people live here. So Creston here near the U.S. border was like the entryway into the Kootenays, right? It was the entryway into this network of back then very prosperous kind of economic little towns. But as we can see from uh, our Google Maps here, the region is pretty mountainous, (laughs) not exactly conducive to something like railways. So what they did to overcome this geographical uh, boundary is that they, so here in question right, so you'd have trains come into the region coming in, and uh, they would also of course go along onwards to other parts of british columbia and then of course they could go down into the united states so this was kind of like your hub your transportation section junction for this area rather than really building upward railways to connect to some of the more northern railways in british columbia what they decided to do instead was kind of institute the system of cold-powered, steam-powered paddle wheelers that would traverse up and down Kootenai Lake. Of course, again, from Creston here, you would have ferries that would go up Kootenai Lake because the thing about this lake is that it is very narrow, but it is very, very deep because, again, it's like a valley right in between two mountains. So it's very good for... um very effectively, right? Almost like a nature-made railway, almost, in the middle of British Columbia. And obviously, they used it to connect to Belfur, was its biggest kind of connection point, because from Belfur, you could go down to Nelson, which was another very important city in the region. And of course, you could go up and connect to various ta- various towns, mining settlements, logging settlements, up in the northern part of Kootenai Lake. And that was how all of this economic activity was connected with one another. It was through a series of ferries and trains. The train would basically chug on to these steam wheelers, and then the steam wheelers would take them along the lake and then drop them off. Or, of course, trains could be coming out of various mining settlements, coming on to the ferries and then be going down to Creston and then being moved to other parts of Canada or the United States this legacy still lives on in the region to this day unfortunately there are no longer any coal powered paddle wheels at uh, the ships that go up and down the lake uh, as much as i wish they as much as i wish there were because god those things are freaking cool so i actually took this summer we went to Caslo, which is another very small town only about a 1000 people live here Makes like, it's a village then i took my kid to see the the USS Steam Wheeler, the Moye, which was the last steamwheeler in operation. And I believe they decommissioned it sometimes in, in the 60s, right? And it's very, very cool. Okay. God damn you. So as you can see, it's a well preserved uh steam wheeler. It's the last one that's really uh well preserved out there. And it's like a museum these days. You can go on it and, and uh you know, you spend some here. You can see this is like the interior of it super interesting like i thought it's like a very sophisticated uh way to travel right um in any case yeah you can go in and pay a couple bucks you get to see the very well preserved interior um and in then they have things like old fords and things like that preserved in the cargo hold i doubt many of you guys would ever get the opportunity to go but if you're ever in the region well worth a visit very interesting history like i said and I personally like, again, I find these kind of steam-powered paddle wheelers and stuff like that. God, they're so interesting, and I wish that I was born in a time where I could have at least gotten to ride on one, at least one time. So anyway, why the hell am I talking about this? Where is this all going? Oh, don't worry, it all has a place, it all has a reason. Because this legacy of ferries still lives on uh, in this region to this day, in fact, I believe it still has a world title, which is, I believe it is still the world record here for the longest free ferry ride in existence. So there is a ferry that still operates here that you can take from this small town Belfer to this even smaller town Kootenay Bay across Kootenay Lake takes about 45 minutes. And again, it's super awesome. If you're ever in the region, it's well worth it just to ride the ferry because you can walk on, you drive on don't have to pay anything and it's a very kind of relaxing ride across the lake and this ferry operates all the time all year completely subsidized by the british Columbia government again there's no ticket completely free you drive on you drive off and that's it <laughs> i like that and the, i like that in the google maps that as we zoom in we could actually uh, see the ferry crossing the lake i like to give you guys like a visualization of what i'm talking about so um, this is the Belfer ferry landing, just so you guys know, just so you guys have a visualization. You know, you drive your car on, and uh, the ferry, we can see her right here in the distance coming in. A little dock right here. You drive your car on, and then uh, away she goes down the lake. Now, there are two ferries that operate in this little crossing There is the Belfer and the Offspray. The Offspray was commissioned in 2000. I remember it very well as a kid because my dad was very excited. About this new boat coming in. And then the other ferry, the smaller Balfour, is being retired. They hope at some point, because this thing is ancient, I believe it's from the 1960s or something along those lines, perhaps even older. Regardless, though, they are trying to retire this ship. However, they have yet to be able to retire this ancient vessel. The B.C. government has actually commissioned has actually purchased, more rather, a new ferry for this crossing. It's apparently a very high-tech, high-end vessel. Apparently, it's got a hybrid engine that can be both a gas, I'm not, or gas or diesel, I'm not sure if it's gas or diesel, fossil fuel-powered, and also electric-powered. So anyway, they've been trying to get this new ship, but there's been some issues around getting it built, or the engine, or there's a lot of vague excuses apparently given, uh, by, given by the government as to why they haven't been able to get this ship operational. But while I was there, I was talking to my father about this, and he was talking to me about the local politics of the region, and my dad was talking about how he thinks that the reason why they can't get this vessel here, they can't get it operational, is not because they're having issues with the engines or anything like that. He believes, in fact, that it is due to the fact that he believes that it's because they cannot get enough people to actually staff this new vessel because it's going to be bigger. Obviously, you're going to need a lot of people to work full time because, like I said, this ferry runs all the time, constantly, no matter what. Even if there is no one getting on or off, there is still people operating that ferry and going back and forth. So I actually believe that there's some truth to that, that they're having trouble finding adequate staff for this new ship. My father, however, takes it a little bit further to the point where I, I'm, I'm not in agreement with him. Where his reason as to why they can't find enough people to staff it is because Trudeau is like giving people free money and nobody wants to work anymore and everybody wants to stay home and collect free money. A lot of your kind of like boilerplate right wing economic talking points. And I was trying to tell dad, I think that he's right about them having staffing issues, but I think he's wrong uh, about the reason. I think they're having trouble staffing people, not because there's this hidden class of people that are getting free money and don't want to work. I, I think it's because that there's not the people, period, to staff it, right? There's not enough people to fulfill that job. Obviously, in the grand scheme of things, there certainly is. I'm talking about in this region specifically, there is not enough people necessary to staff that job so let's just look this region for a second for people who are probably within driving distance of the ferry and take that job there's maybe 30,000 people and of those 30,000 people I would guess that the median age in this region is definitely creeping towards that retirement age I'm feeling like 45 maybe 50 years of age because a lot of these small towns are just great <laughs> they're great areas to retire to. My dad's retired to this area. I hope that maybe one day I can retire retire to it too because it's just a very nice chill area. The weather particularly in the summer is great. There's not a lot going on but you can hang out. It's a good time. You can go fishing, of course, lots of outdoor activities, hiking, hunting, whatever you want to do. But the point is, is that there aren't a lot of young guys my age that that uh, job would appeal to because that is a job that what's a union job, comes with a pension, a high-paying job in an area that's relatively low cost of living. But the issue is that you're going to be very isolated moving out here. And particularly if you have kids, there's not a lot of options for schools in the region so it's not very attractive to the age demographic that a job like that appeals to. If you are going to try and find a job or something like that, or move to this region, the chances are very likely you're going to move to this city here. Nelson, this is a city which is a little bit bigger, 20,000 people. I might be off by by a little bit here, um, but it's probably the biggest uh, city in the region, and it um is a very young city very young very vibrant very left-leaning super hippy-dippy city i fucking love nelson to be quite honest one of my favorite cities it's a fantastic tourist city uh in particular it reminds me of a little miniature san francisco almost in the middle of the mountains super cool regardless though if you're a young person chances are you'll probably try and find a uh, live and find work in nelson Rather than have to drive, it's rather than have to drive every day, the 30 to 40 minutes, depending on traffic, because it's a one lane highway out to the ferry landing. Anyway, my point to my father, was, it's not that these people don't want to work. It's just that they don't exist here. There's not people here that that job would appeal to, to staff it. And this is a huge issue that is facing a lot of small towns here in Canada and in the United States and not just small towns. Rural towns in place like Europe over across the pond and uh, Europe fucking over across the other pond and Japan, China, South Korea. This is an issue facing a lot of countries right now, which is a graying sort of rural demographic that needs new blood injected into it to keep things going like they used to. And if they don't get this new blood, then they're going to die slowly, basically. This is the predicament that I really worry that the Kootenays are in, is in this kind of slow, agonizing, demographic death spiral. Because unfortunately for young people, especially like young people like me that have family, this region is not a very attractive region to live in, basically. Because there isn't a lot of infrastructure, it's very isolated, there's no airports, there's no nearby big cities or anything like that, and that's just not attractive to young people that even though this area does have a pretty low cost of living and if you didn't move here and, I, and you did work on the ferry I think that that's a low-key really good opportunity for anybody who's Canadian out there looking for a, a good union pension job moving out here and working on the ferries and particularly if you're a kind of guy that wants to buy a house have a family really good opportunity for someone who has those kind of ambitions and goals but what young people are doing in my demographic are either A, um, which I think is unfortunately the worst thing that uh, people are doing, which is trying to tough it out in these high cost of living areas, trying to tough it out in a Vancouver, in a Toronto, in for the United States, LA or New York, trying to tough it out in these high cost of living areas, or they are moving to a low cost of living area that still has a lot of amenities that a big city has like a place like where I live, like Edmonton, I, I would say like falls into this kind of category because it's still a big city. Uh, we still have a major sports team. Uh, we still have uh, large uh, famous bands that come here uh, and perform concerts. All the kind of things you would expect a large city to have are still here in Edmonton. That's a relatively low cost of living area. And Calgary also falls into this category as well. then if they're not doing that the third option they're doing is moving to small uh, rural towns with low cost of living that are still relatively close to one of these bigger more metropolitan areas that they could still occasionally go to and visit you know on a weekend you know have a good time every so often but not be steeped (laughs) in that urban culture constantly Unfortunately, what they're not doing for places like this is moving to isolated rural areas where there isn't access to a large metropolitan area that kind of has a lot of those cosmopolitan utilities that we're more accustomed to and that we like. So not only do you have this kind of demographic chokehold happening in a lot of these kind of areas that I'm I'm talking about, specifically isolated rural areas they are also getting burned on the other end because we are coming out of a historic pandemic and we are seeing what happens historically after every large pandemic, which is that workers are demanding more rights as a result of the fact that there are less people because of the pandemic that we just had. And unfortunately, this pandemic affected elderly people at a higher rate than younger and middle-aged people. And then on the other end of the spectrum, that for a lot of people who were on the edge of retirement and thinking about, well, am I done? Do I really want to keep working? COVID pushed them over the edge into that retirement bracket. So not only did you have a lot of people, unfortunately, dying, you had a lot of people being pushed into early retirement as a result of the pandemic and the rearranging of their life priorities that it caused and this again is a very common historical trend of course the very famous peasant revolt happened immediately in the aftermath of the black death and of course it makes sense that the peasants who remain want more for their work because there's less of them and they're probably going to have to do more work to make up the shortfalls, and if you're going to want us to do more, you're going to have to you're going to have to give us more, right? Got to be some give and take here. But you might say, "Hey, back death, it's bad, 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 bad. It's a long time ago. I don't know why you would say it like that. You should probably get a check, You should probably get yourself checked out if you're talking like that." Okay, let's go look at something a little bit more current, a little bit more modern. So let's fast forward now a little bit to the last pandemic. We had the last historic example before the one we just endured. That is, of course, the Spanish influenza or the Spanish flu post-World War I. By the time 1919 rolls around, not only is the Spanish influenza, the effects are still very much so being felt. Of course, you have the aftermath of World War I, so you have this compounding effect of not only a lot of people dying due to illness, you have a lot of people dying due to war. And in the aftermath, this obviously sparked a lot of revolutionary and radical sentiment among the workers who remain to try and push for better rights and more value for their work. And a lot of this fervor culminated in these May Day riots of 1919, which to this day have never been replicated in terms of a kind of socialist uprising and movement within the United States probably one of the most successful socialist protests in american history and of course organized by the industrial workers of the world again we have not seen an event like it since and this is of course 1919 right you have to think about socialism is definitely running very high you have the aftermath of the russian revolution and this is the time when people are thinking there might be a worldwide communist revolution, right? There might be something that happens everywhere simultaneously. Unfortunately, as we know, that did not happen. But the point here I want you guys to take away is that this is a very common theme after any type of pandemic, which is that you have workers demanding more rights and more value for the labor that they have left because there's less of them. Basic economics supply and demand that you guys have to come to the table. And I think, once again, we are seeing that playing out right now in our current history. So as I'm sure, well, well, let me go up here quickly here. This is from, this is a source from the CBC. The main reason I, I use it is because I really like the map they had here that shows us all the strikes that are happening over the United States. Of course, this is the United Auto Workers Strike has been ongoing. I have, up until this point, just avoided talking about it because there were A, other things I wanted to talk about, and B, I didn't really feel like I had the hook that I wanted to, but now I finally found a way to bring it all together. In any case, we have no deal struck yet on these United Auto Worker strikes. Here is a wonderful map of where all these strikes are happening across the United States. Of course, these workers are asking for a numerous amount of reasonable things. My personal favorite thing that they, by and large, are asking for is for raises commensurate with the CEO, which is, I believe, forty percent over three years. That is my personal favorite demand, and it's like one of those ones like you have to be a real weasel to try and talk your way out of giving to people. But even more so than that, one of the things that I'm sure you guys probably are very well aware of maybe you've experienced this phenomenon yourselves even is that a lot of these organizations and not just auto workers unions but a lot of these trade organizations will refrain from hiring people full-time because they don't want to give them the appropriate benefits and vacation days all those things that come having full-time employment all those rights that come with being a full-time employee these organizations will find absolutely any way they can to string you along and make you think that you will get that vaunted full-time position but at the same time they will basically be doing everything they can to not give it to you to keep you following along following that carrot never actually reaching it but still at the same time your labor is being exploited for their gain this is a real serious issue and hopefully we can do something about it maybe find a way we can have some legislations for rights for part-time workers as well as full-time workers so employers and organizations can no longer use that loophole to deny workers their rights. So obviously, if it's not clear, I'm very in favor of the auto workers. I believe that the power to strike is one of the most powerful abilities that we as ordinary citizens still have It's a right that should be protected and exercised at every appropriate opportunity. And the unfortunate thing is for these auto workers unions and a lot of employers across the world is that they are in a position where they are going to have to give. They can not take anymore. The old sort of era of Reaganite neoliberal economics is over the era where all the world had all access to labor wherever it existed, thus driving down the cost of labor substantially worldwide, those times are thankfully coming to a close. And this is going to get worse if you're coming from the perspective of an employer before it's going to get better, because unlike back in the first pandemic, the Spanish influenza 100 years ago, coming off the heels of World War I, hopefully, fingers crossed, what's happening in Ukraine isn't going to escalate into some sort of third world war. That while the employers in the 1919 era had to face the double whammy of the pandemic and the war, the employers of our era are facing the double whammy of the pandemic and demographic decline, which has only been accelerated by the pandemic. This double whammy is most apparent in China. We have no idea how badly the pandemic affected China. Obviously, the numbers coming out of that country are are suspected best. And then, of course, we have the well-known, very aging demographic of China, that we have a large glut of Elderly people and not as many young people to replace them. This is further worsened for China because during the pandemic, many people started to turn away from China, and those that remain are probably only there because they couldn't really pull the chute. They didn't really have the resources to relocate or find another spot. But during the pandemic, you saw a huge number of manufacturers flee China, going to places like India. Going to places like vietnam going to places like mexico and thankfully in some places going to places like their own home countries where uh, goods are starting to be manufactured more and more within the internal borders of said countries which again i believe is a net positive while there still is access to the world's labor for a lot of international corporations The era of extremely cheap labor is definitely in its twilight. There are still going to be places where you can find some cheap manufacturing. Again, India is going to be probably the number one place that people will look to in the future. Also, Mexico will benefit. But the thing about Mexico, I know a lot of people like shit on Mexico as being like a really poor country. Mexico is not that poor country, guys. Like Mexico is not a bad country at all. It's pretty, when you take it the global perspective things, it's definitely well above average in terms of wealth, and that is on sort of an individual per capita basis. So manufacturing will still flee to Mexico, but they still will have to pay more for Mexican labor, for Chinese labor. thing is that they'll probably get most of those costs back due to the fact that shipping something from Mexico to the United States is a lot easier than from China to the United States. So yeah, the power of labor is growing across the world, and these kind of strikes and labor actions that we are seeing are only going to increase, and they're only going to get worse. Because there's one last factor here at play that I want to talk about before I wrap this episode up. Like I said, I want to make it shorter than usual. The last factor I want to bring up is that guys like my dad, they are aiming at something again that is happening but they again are are misinterpreting uh, some of the reasons because not in the kootenays like we talked about but there are places in which there are people who can work but don't want to work and the reason they don't want to work is because they don't want to grind their lives away for something that pays minimum wage and a high cost of living area to effectively never get ahead So a lot of people during the pandemic and during the times when we're getting the various pandemic relief packages ask themselves, why the hell am I working 12-hour for virtually no money in an area where I'm spending all my money on basic necessities anyway? I'm not getting ahead this way. I'm never going to get ahead this way. I need to reevaluate what I'm doing and whatever it is that I'm going to do it certainly doesn't involve grinding myself away at some job that I hate to have the luxury of grinding myself away again tomorrow. In a lot of these high cost of living areas, a lot of people after the pandemic just ask themselves, what the hell is the point of, of working? What am I wasting my life towards? I'm not getting ahead. I'm at the rate I'm going. I'm never going to own a house. I'm never going to uh, be able to build my wealth and build my savings. Probably not going to have a family. What the fuck am I doing here? Um, now? That, and now that the pandemic is over, again, uh, that they've reevaluated their lives. That certainly doesn't uh, involve them going back to the same misery that they were before. So all in all, my big exciting thing is that I think that labor is back, that we are going to be able to demand more for our labor. We're going to be able to demand more for our work and there is simply not a lot that these employers can do about it because of again there's a, there there's going to be less people to do a lot of these skilled jobs that they need and they're going to have to come to the table at some point something's going to break at some point and if historical precedent is anything to go by generally speaking ends up breaking is the employers and that labor does get A little bit more slice of the pie when everything is said and done. And that's something I think that is well overdue for guys like me. My entire life, I've seen wages stagnate effectively. It's time that we saw a little bit of a shift in the other direction. No, not just for hope for me, but again, hope for my children as well. And this was one of the great things that I'm not going to cover the second Republican debate because. It it was a fucking shit show. It was one of those things that after you watched it, you wondered what is the point of life anymore. But the big thing I really like about what's happening uh, in this Republican primary is that they are coming out as viciously anti-worker as they have always been. Uh, There's obviously not a populist bone in their body. They are more than happy. All of them basically shat all over the unions and all over the striking auto workers. I don't think that's going to be a successful political ploy. And if it is, honestly, God help us all, because that definitely shows that we're in a real degrading society with a real sort of crabbed in the bucket mentality. That if you see people arguing rightly for a small increase in their <laughs> hourly wages and you think, fuck those people. Why aren't I getting, you know, my pittance increase? Uh, yeah, that's an asshole way to think. And again, it's dragging down other people. To, you're trying to drag other people that are close to you down to your level rather than being angry at the CEO that has hoarded and hoovered up all the money towards the top for decades upon decades now. Anyway, buckle up, because I think that we are just seeing the start of this. Of course, we had even more, like we can go deeper into this, we can talk about technological disruptions in terms of AI, although currently where AI stands with a lot of the kind of breakthroughs that we've seen, I don't see it placing writers or artists or anything like that right now. Maybe we will get to that point. But the thing about the AI, and I, I think it is not being talked about and very misunderstood, is that where we are now, right? I'm not not talking about in the future, but I'm talking about with the tools currently that we have now, the AI we have is nowhere near capable of replacing a human being. You're still going to need a human being at some point to always review the AI's work and to work with it. So right now I see us working more in tandem with a lot of these AI tools. These are right now tools in our tool belt to help us accomplish things that we want to accomplish. These are not things that are going to automate out us entirely, at least not yet. So long story short, I don't think a lot of these kind of Hollywood executives can sit and bank on AI coming to save the day, particularly when there's a lot of question marks about as to how copyrighted AI material can be. These are obviously some very serious legal questions That are going to have to be worked out and it's not going to happen overnight. But the one thing I do think that these writers are very smart in doing is trying to protect themselves from the future, right? We have no idea where these AI tools are going to evolve and how quickly they're going to evolve. They could very quickly evolve into something that could potentially automate a writer out of a job. Or they can Not they can stagnate, the technology can stagnate and maybe see marginal improvements. And writers can't be uh, automated out of a job, maybe ever, or at least not for another 40, 50 years type of thing. We don't know where technology is going to take us. And given that uncertainty, I think it's very smart for a lot of these writers and actors to try and negotiate for a deal that can at least lock them into something, locking them into some sense of certainty going forward. Anyway, that's going to bring us to the end of our show. I know a little bit shorter of an episode uh, today. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm a little bit exhausted. Still getting used to the whole new schedule. And um, yeah, going to have to take it a little bit easy, at least for this week. So with that in mind, I don't know why you guys got to keep that in mind, but I really hope you do. This has been Comrade signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care.